Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Passion is what makes things happen. The energising and curious words of Indian philosopher, writer and sexologist Fatsiana, known to most as a progressive and wonderfully candid author of the Kama Sutra. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. What makes for a great philosophical work? Well, tonight on Talking Books, we're going to unravel that question with two inquisitive and talented thinkers. One an American, the other a Welshman. Writers of tremendous spirit, gusto and charm. Wendy Doniger simplifies the erotic charge of the ancient Indian Hindu text, the Kama Sutra. And Mark Rowlands talks his latest book, A Good Life, published by Granta Books. This is a show about question and openness, roles and character, sexual gymnastics, positioning and all that jazz. But first, is the Kama Sutra a feminist text. My name is Wendy Doniger. I'm an American scholar and I've been studying Sanskrit literature, ancient Indian literature, especially religious literature for the past about 50 years now. And I've done translations of the Rig Veda and of various Hindu myths, and I did a translation of the Kama Sutra a few years ago. And I've also written a book about the Kama Sutra called Redeeming the Kama Sutra. I wrote a book called The Hindus, an alternative history that ran me into the blasphemy laws in India, and I got into a lawsuit over that. That was very exciting. When the dust settled, the book is still available in India, and my royalties have increased enormously from the publicity I got. But I worry about um, India's reaction to more liberal literature and more liberal translations and interpretations of Hinduism. And so I wrote the book, The Redeeming the Kama Sutra, trying to persuade Indians to read their own great text and not to be ashamed of it. Really well done on your publications, Wendy. I have to say hats off to you. Always very intriguing and challenging what you write. I'm just going to throw you a quote from the author of the Kama Sutra, Vatsiyana. I'm interested to see what you make of it. When the wheels of sexual ecstasy are in full motion, there is no textbook at all and no order. Do you agree with that? I do, and I think it's wonderful for the author of a text to say to you, I can only do so much for you, but sex is mysterious and individual, and when you get really um, excited, you're not going to remember reading the Kama Sutra, so I can just help you so much. He constantly limits the text. He says, I can tell you what to do, but watch out. He says, sex is dangerous. Make sure you know who you are, who you are with, who your partner is, and so forth. So I think that's one. I think it's true. I think you can do just so much with a book when you're dealing with a subject as intimate and personal and passionate and potentially destructive as sexuality. And I think it's one of the many brilliant things in this book that he says, I can help you just so far, and then you're on your own. Should the Kama Sutra be considered as part of the canon of Indian literature and Indian philosophy? 
I certainly think so, and not only I, but um, Indian texts think so. The whole, you know, India has an unbroken history of texts for 3,000 years, and the Kama Sutra is constantly referred to, uh, illustrated, new editions are made, all of the Indian love poetry and court poetry quotes it and cites it in various ways. I think it also had a great influence on Indian religion, on Hinduism, on the whole erotic tradition of uh, the god Krishna and his beloved Radha, and uh, the whole erotic tradition of the god Shiva as well. So I think not only do I think it's a great work of literature, but the history of Indian literature seems to have thought it was a great work of literature. I think it's also a great work of psychology, and I think it's that that we can really get from it now. It's also a great work of sociology. It's a description of what life was like in ancient India for the rich, for the privileged, not for everybody, but not just for Brahmins or upper caste people, for anyone with money, merchants and people like that. I think it's a, a, one of the fine works of its period for the details of, of what human life was like for such people. And it's a wonderful work of psychology about how you can tell whether people like you, whether they're lying to you, whether they're getting tired of you, all those things that we all need to know nowadays too. It's all there. What about power and gender dynamics? Do you think it's fair to consider the Kama Sutra as a feminist text in some way? It can't be really called a feminist text. I think it pushes back quite wonderfully against the virulent sexism that ruled in India for all of Indian history and is, in fact, still running it today. So I think India has always had a problem with women. And in that setting, the Kama Sutra does a great deal to back off that and to counteract it and to listen to women and to record the opinions of women and to argue that women's sexual pleasure matters and that it is the duty of men to provide pleasure for women and so forth. So I think it makes enormous steps forward and has a great deal to say in favor of women. You couldn't really call it a feminist text because it doesn't really argue for the rights of women or anything of that sort. It does, for instance, argue that one of the things that distinguishes humans from animals is that humans don't just have sex to have children. Humans have sex for pleasure, whereas animals just have sex in order to um, beget progeny. And that goes against all of classical Indian religious law, which says that the only purpose of sex is fertility. If your wife is barren, kick her out. If a man is sterile, you can kick him out. Only have sex on the days when a woman is in her fertile period and so forth, and denies entirely the other aspects of sexuality. So there are enormous strides forward in favour of women in the book. And of course, the Kama Sutra advocated the G-spot. Which was it's one of the first yeah. one of the first texts to talk about the G spot. I mean, in, in Europe, they didn't know about it till the twentieth century, and here it is in the second century or so. It's quite it's a quite clear description of the, of what it, what the G spot is and what you're supposed to do about it. Do you think sex is hard to not only describe but also to understand, whether it's heterosexual sex, gay sex, whatever it is? I think it is. I think. Nowadays, of course, people take videos of themselves performing sexual acts, but for most of human history, you never actually saw other people having sex, and it became mysterious in that sense. You could learn how to tie your tie, you could learn how to hold your knife and fork, but no one actually showed you how they do it. So I think it was mysterious in that sense. But I think it's mysterious also because everybody is different, and people are extremely individual in their sexuality. So even if you know a lot 
lot about yourself. You might not know anything at all about the sexuality of your partner. And there's a lot of fright. There's a lot of nervousness. There's a lot of crazy mythology. There's a lot of wrong thinking about it. Religion has gotten some weird ideas about sex and puts those ideas into children's heads and so forth. So I think people have a lot of misgivings about sex, a lot of doubts about it, and insecurities about it, and most of European culture has preyed upon those doubts and made them worse and made people less secure than they might otherwise be. So I think there's a lot of mystery and insecurity about sex which makes it mysterious. It strikes me there's a lot of stuff hidden about sex, whether Mm -hmm. we hide our feelings or our feelings about sex to ourselves or our intimate partners, or whether we fail to communicate what is most important within our sexual selves and our sexual identity. Absolutely. And of course, Freud wrote a great deal about the way that secrecy about sex affects other parts of life as well, that it produces attitudes which extend to normal non-sexual parts of our interaction with other human beings, that it really clouds a great deal of our life besides our sex lives. Do you think the Kama Sutra has been overlooked in some way? I think it certainly has been overlooked. For one thing, People have always thought that it is only about the sexual positions. That's the joke about the Kama Sutta. And in fact, the book has seven parts. One of those seven parts is about the sexual act. And one-tenth of that one-seventh part is about the actual sexual act. The rest of it is about kissing and biting and scratching and doing other things. So the positions take up a very, very small, what, 1% of the book is about the positions. So people don't read it because they think it's just about the positions and they may not be interested in it, and that's the end of that. So it's been overlooked, certainly in European civilization, a great deal because it was only known in the translation by Sir Richard Burton. It was illegal until 1962 in America or Britain. So all that period, all you had was the Burton translation, which, by the way, is not very accurate and leaves out some things, but it's certainly better than nothing. So people really don't know what's in the Kama Sutra, and therefore it has been overlooked. And in India, it's home where there's a great deal of prudery. People get arrested for holding hands in public. You're not allowed to kiss in Indian movies. I mean, there's an enormous lot of sexual repression in India. So in India, the Kama Sutra has really hardly been read at all. Do you think Fatsiana set out to write a book about the art of living and then within that sexuality and the nature of sex and how we enjoy pleasure by definition was a big part of it? I think certainly. Of course, the word karma means much more than just sexuality. It means pleasure. It means what you do to delight yourself. It includes music and art and eating good food and so forth. The book is really about living the good life. He tells you how to furnish your apartment. He tells you what food to serve at parties. He tells you what games to play at parties. He tells you how to spend your afternoons going to cockfights and going to musical concerts and having picnics and so forth. So it really is about living the good life. And it's part of a broader Hindu concern for what are called the three aims of life. Dharma, which is religion and society and justice, and Artha, which is success and money, and Kama, which is pleasure. It's one of the three legitimate human goals. And uh, the Kama Sutra is about pleasure in the broadest sense, although particularly about sexual pleasure, but by no means only. Why do you think we avoid conversations about pleasure? 
Well, you know, there's a difference between the we that you speak of as an Irish woman and the we that I speak of as an American. I think Irish and American attitudes toward pleasure are really very different. Until very recently, pleasure was simply something that wasn't supposed to be enjoyed at all in Ireland, other than, I think, mostly getting drunk. But the idea of sexual pleasure was not in the forefront of, of Irish concerns, whereas Americans have been talking about sexual pleasure for a little longer, at least, certainly since World War II when I was born. So there's a difference, I think, in, in different cultural attitudes toward pleasure. But I do think that the cult of pleasure is, in America at least, getting subsumed under the cult of money, which is something quite different, which is about ostentation and public show and so forth, and less about the real pleasures that one has in intimate settings with one's children and one's dog and one's husband and so forth. So I think that we've moved away from real pleasure, intimate pleasure, to a kind of public pleasure. And in the course of that, sexuality has gotten trampled about quite a bit because it becomes public. Then you parade that you have a young partner, you divorce your wife so you can show that you're still virile by having a young girl on your arm when you go out and so forth. And it's not really about what you do in bed at all. It's about what you appear to do in the world. And I think that's a real loss. I think that hanging on to the value of, of real intimate pleasure is getting to be a lost art. And it's, that's a, a real shame. And the Kama Sutra, if taken seriously, would do a great deal to restore that, I think. It's not about public pleasures. It's about sitting on your rooftop, as people do in India on hot nights, and looking at the stars and drinking cool drinks with your beloved sitting next to you after you've made love and so forth. It has a lot about living the good life in an intimate sense rather than a look how much money I have sense. Embracing life, really, isn't it? Wendy. Yes. Now, yes. now you write in your introductions that the Kama Sutra resembles a work of dramatic fiction more than anything else. You pose a very interesting question. You ask, is the Kama Sutra a play about sex? Well, is it mm-hmm. a play about sex or how would you describe it? I think it's written that way. And so I translate it that way. A lot of the actual Sanskrit says oh, the man should do this, the man should do that. And I left out all the shoulds. And I just wrote it in the indicative. First, the man does this, then he invites the woman to do that, then he does this, then she does that. Because I think it really reads like a novel or a play where in the first part you set up your apartment and then the man goes and he meets a girl and he learns what the sexual act is. That's the part that has the positions. Then if he wants to get married he learns, he he meets a young girl and then the fourth chapter is about when you're married how does the woman manage if there are several wives? How does she keep her husband's um, attention sexually? And then in the fifth book, well if you get tired of your wife how do you commit adultery? So the guy commits adultery. And in the sixth book. If he's tired of committing adultery, he might go to a courtesan. So the sixth book is about courtesans. And when he gets old and tired, he might need a little bit of help with his sexuality. So the seventh book is about drugs you can take and things you can eat to increase your virility and so forth. So I think there really is a kind of a progress in it. And Indian plays do have seven acts. And this is a book of seven books. And 
the word that uh, is often used for the man who and the woman is the nayaka and the nayika, which is the hero and heroine, really, is what he often calls them. He also calls the man the nagaraka, the man about town, the city man, because this is about urban pleasures. This is not about country pleasures. But the fact that they also use the dramatic terms, I think, thinks that the author is thinking of, of telling a story, a dramatic story, and along the way showing you how you two can do it. So there, he stops for instructions and so forth. It reads like a story, like a drama. And in the fifth book, she gets tired of him and has, wants to get rid of him, different tricks she can use to kick him out. And Of course, along the way, there's a lot of instruction. It is set up like an instruction manual, but it's laid out like a story, like a play. Yeah, the words are very instructive and it's very, very practical and very specific. Mm -hmm. But the language is very beautiful also, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You argue classical Hinduism is generally significantly silent on the subject of homoeroticism. And Mm -hmm. and you say, while Hindu mythology does drop hints from which we can excavate a pretty virulent homophobia. I'm just wondering, where does the Kama Sutra rank in terms of literature? I think it's extraordinarily liberal for its time, for even for any time, really, um, about homosexuality. I mean, in other books in India at that time, homosexuality is simply listed as one of a number of sexual crimes, along with having sex with animals and so forth and so forth. You're not supposed to do it, and there's a fine. It's not a big deal about it, but you're not supposed to do it, and it's a fine. In the Kama Sutra, there's a long description of a man who's in the closet. So you know there was a closet, right? Because obviously he can't be open about his desires. He makes his living as a masseur, and when another man comes to him that he thinks might be interested, in the course of massaging him, he touches him in a slightly more intimate place, and then he waits to see whether the guy says, hey, what are you doing? Stop that, or would you please do that again? And depending on the man's reaction, he proceeds, and it's described in great detail of how he proceeds, and in the end, the men have oral sex. And he says, well, that's what some people do. It's not, it's great, it's terrible, you should do it, nobody should do it. He just says, let me tell you, there are some people who do this. And he also talks about men who live together and who give each other sexual pleasure. And then he goes on just like that. It's very open to male homosexuality. Female homosexuality, somewhat less. The assumption is that women do indeed have sex with women, but only when they can't have sex with men. In other words, the women in the royal harem are said to have sex with one another, but that's because they're locked up. So he doesn't really understand that women might live together as lovers the way men do. That's not imagined in this book. It's not condemned but it's not even imagined. So it's as liberal as you could possibly get at this time, and there's nothing like it, nor is there anything like it afterward. I mean, India is still virulently homophobic. Gay people get beaten up, and there's no legal protection for them. There was a law, and now they've abandoned that law, and there's a lot of trouble about homosexuality in India still. Kama Sutra is like a beacon of light in this great centuries of darkness, saying some men do this. End of story. Fatsiana in ways was very much a social reformer when you think centuries ago, when we look at present India. It's, it's hard to explain really, isn't it? 
And he's also very strong about the, the rights that women have in marriage in particular. In the social texts of the time, in the religious texts of the time, women have no rights. They have to treat the husband like a god. Whatever he does is wonderful. She, they can't leave. They can't get divorced and so forth. The Kama Sutra says if a man doesn't treat her wife very well, she's going to leave him for somebody else. You better behave yourself. Be concerned for her happiness and for her pleasure, not just her sexual pleasure. He also has women running the entire household, men managing all the expenses. They have all the money. They hire and fire the help. They decide how to, um, what to buy. They, they preserve foods, and they make sure there's enough wine in the cellar and so forth. So he has women in marriage being very powerful in ways they are not in other texts also. And, of course, sexually, he considers that women are equal partners, and it is the man's job to give the woman pleasure. So he's just miles and centuries ahead of his time. But it creates such hope, if you look at it, Wendy, another way to think that people living centuries and centuries ago had that insight and that could think that differently. It gives hope today that maybe things will change. Can I ask you, Sir Richard Francis translated the Kama Sutra in 1813 and you go into a lot of detail on how he went about it and you argue that his main contribution was the courage and determination to publish the work. Without doubt, very merited on that. But how did he get it so wrong? I know we mentioned the G-spot earlier, but there's loads of errors in the translation. How do yep. we understand that? Well, um, Sir Richard Burton was, was very brave to do it. He published it with a mythical publishing company and so forth. He did a great deal. He wasn't really a Sanskritist. He was an Arabic scholar, and he came to India just for a couple of months and worked with another man, whom he called Bunny, who in turn worked with two Indian real Sanskritists, who obviously translated the Sanskrit into English for them, and then the two Englishmen worked over that English. So there are several stages in which there could have been slippages. That's the first thing to say. second thing to say is that it was over 100 years ago, and people change. I mean, we're still retranslating Homer. We're retranslating Plato. Different translators make different mistakes, and you sort of grow from that. But the third thing is that the mistakes he made were mistakes about gender. His ideas, uh, Burton's ideas uh, about men and women were Victorian, and literally he (laughs) worked under Queen Victoria. So he just couldn't get things right because he couldn't believe that they were saying that. Yeah, as I was reading through through some of your commentary on it, and I found it actually quite funny in parts, but also a little disturbing. But it struck Mm -hmm. me that maybe he lacked two things, psychological insight and, importantly, sexual curiosity about sexual curiosity. He wrote about homosexuality in other places. He was a kind of a pornographer in many ways. He published a lot of pornographic books and his wife, Isabel, burnt all his letters when he died, so we have no idea what he was doing at that time. So I think he had the curiosity, but he didn't have the understanding of gender possibilities. For instance, the passage I told you about where the masseur is in the closet is trying to find out how far he can go with his customer. Burton translates that passage, but he calls the man a eunuch so that no one realizes that that's a passage about normal men who have sex with other men. Why he calls him a eunuch, I do not know. There is nothing in the Sanskrit at all to indicate that the man is a eunuch. But he was just figuring, I guess, a man who 
could have sex would do it. I don't know why. I don't know it why. It puts he calls all the possibilities. Eunuch. It's so so restrictive in terms of an outlook. Can I ask yep. you what use is a Kama Sutra to us today? In your book, we look at you know the growth of mobile technologies and pornography, and also the literature around it. So it's certainly lost its ability, possibly to shock now. But I'm just wondering what use is it to us now. <laughs> That's a good question. And of course, you're absolutely right. It, there's nothing shocking in it. We know, we know the positions from all the sex manuals you can buy and so forth. I think it's of use as an instruction and inspiration for psychological subtlety between the sexes. It helps us to understand the things that go on in people's minds. There's a whole lot about what people think, why they do that. He thinks, now, if I do this, this will happen, so I better do that instead. There's a lot of insight into what makes people hesitate to do certain things, what makes them do certain things, even though they know they're going to get in trouble for it. There's a lot of insight into adultery. There's a wonderful section, for instance, on the sorts of married women who are more likely to commit adultery than others, and it's about the sorts of things that husbands do to alienate their wives. And it's still true today, all the things. He's, he's smarter than she is, but she's not allowed to talk in public. She doesn't have any children. She is not allowed to go out. Um, just all sorts of things that might make a woman unhappy in her marriage. And it's, it really makes us aware of how people are in marriage and in relationships and so forth. So I think there's a great deal to tell us about the psychology of personal relations, particularly sexual relations, but others as well. And I think it's also got some insights into sensuality, into ways of touching and ways of thinking about the body of another person, which are subtle rather than gross. It also was lots of fun because it shows you what people were thinking about in India 2,000 years ago, and that's a hoot that they had such ideas. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Is art an invitation to compassion? So asks Mark Rowland in A Good Life, Philosophy from Cradle to Grave, published by Granta Books. Where Mark writes, literature is about seeing. Its goal is to enable you to see where your own limitlessness is in the life of another. A truly great novel can alter one's mood for days or longer. It might even change one's life. Hello, my name is Mark Rowlands. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Miami, although I'm originally from Wales. I've written a number of books, including, I suppose, probably my most famous one is called The Philosopher and the Wolf, 